Hello and welcome to another College of Optometrists podcast with me, Martin Cordner, Head of Research at the College. And me, Daniel Hardeman mccartney College Clinical Advisor. Hello and welcome to the Martin's Kitchen podcast with me, Martin Cordner, Head of Bins at the South East London Residence in Question. Daniel, I have a kitchen. So what are the local takeaway services doing? Have they all now yes. gone under? There's wailing, there's gnashing of teeth. They say, come back, come back. What, was it something we did? Was it something we said? Was it too spicy? You know, all of that sort of stuff. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's been a long time coming. I'd like to thank me. I'd like to thank lots of people, but the music's playing. So I think, you know. And, and most importantly, is your kitchen finished or is it kind of builder finished with some snagging to, to sort it's, out? It's finished enough. Uh, there was some bits still to do but we actually removed the builders because we didn't like them. So that's a different story for another podcast. Uh, and I henceforth promise not to mention any of this again until I do. Uh, uh, so, uh, and will listeners be able to see this on a Channel 4 Home Improvement Programme? Uh, is, it, is it part of a, a grand design project? You know what? We missed the opportunity. We didn't get a film crew in. Uh, so we're just going to have to do the whole thing again. It's a good point you make, Daniel. Uh, maybe that will help pay for it. Is that how it works? I doubt it is. Uh, so uh, we'll move swiftly on. I think people have heard enough or not enough. Get in touch. Tell us now. Uh, we'll move swiftly on to our topics for today, which by golly actually have a connecting theme. It's like we planned this. We didn't. Uh, today is about, amongst other things, blur. So Martin spoke to Professor Joanne Wood at the School of Optometry and Vision Science at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia, about her latest research into how refractive blur affects drivers' judgment of pedestrians' walking direction at night. And in what definitely was not a happy accident, uh, Daniel spoke to the college's very own PR manager, Anne-Marie Stevens, and our marketing and communications executive for social media, Abby Duggan, about the college's Focus on Life campaign and the release of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, the Blurred edition. So plenty for you to get your teeth into, although sadly there was no one from the band Blur available to come on the show. That is disappointing. Okay, Joe's research is taken from the latest edition of OPO. And the special edition is themed around refractive care and global inequalities in accessing it. And as a member, you can get access to OPO for free through the college's website. But the special edition is actually open access, so free to everyone everywhere, but only for 90 days. Yeah, even to the members of Blur. You'd think it would be right up their street. But anyway, uh, maybe we'll have more luck with members of alternative 90s Britpop bands on next month's show. Or maybe not. So... First up, it's Martin's conversation with Joanne. Joanne Wood, thanks very much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Martin. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to be here and to actually have the opportunity to discuss a paper from the special issue seeing beyond 2020, which was in OPO recently. Great. So you're based in Australia, uh, in Queensland, Brisbane, to be precise. Uh, how are things in Australia at the moment, pandemic-wise? It's a good question. Uh, currently, the situation in Australia generally is reasonably good, uh, with only a limited spread of COVID-19. So I think on a day-to-day -day basis, we feel relatively normal. We're working mm. from, most people are working at their workplace. Only a few people are continuing to work at home. We have had some border closures when there have been some community outbreaks, but that's been less so recently. But I think one of the biggest challenges for us is about our vaccine rollout, which has been relatively slow. 
And because we have been relying on a large extent on the AstraZeneca vaccine, the fact that there's been some side effects for those younger than 50 has become a challenge for us in terms of alternatives. So that's something the government is currently working on. But a big negative is that our international borders are currently closed and likely to be so until the middle of next year. So you can imagine that presents a number of challenges on a number of fronts, but particularly, of course, for our international students. Yeah, that's quite a thing, isn't it? That it's going to last that long. I suppose, I mean, that's a response that many countries are trying. It's an extraordinary situation. I mean, how, how did it uh, impact your teaching and research when things, when you were sort of in the middle of the pandemic, as it were? Are things, so things are relatively back to normal now in terms of your workplace? Things are back to pretty well back to normal at the moment. Uh, there was a big impact on our teaching and our research, but in Brisbane, we were much less affected than other places like Melbourne, for example, who had a much longer and extended lockdown. But in mm. terms of teaching, as soon as the pandemic hit in March, our teaching was online for the first semester. So our semesters, we have two semesters, one from sort of March through June, and then a second semester, mid-July through to October. So our first semester was all online, and that really included some recorded Zooms and PowerPoints, as well as tutorials. And we also did a lot of our practical sessions online as much as possible, and put some of the practical sessions that weren't amenable to online to the second semester. We also closed our optometry clinic for two months and then reopened following government and um, health authority advice with our strict COVID practices, which I know that you've adhered to in the UK. Uh, We also extended our clinic times to really try and make up for the catch up with the clinical teaching so our students could still graduate at the end of the year, which was the case. So we were very pleased to have been able to extend that opportunities for students so that they could still graduate on time, which obviously was a big worry for them. But my teaching is really not very clinical. It's largely basic science as well as research. So our challenges were more trying to make sure our online delivery was as imaginative and flexible and engage the students as much as possible. And we did do a fair bit of online practical sessions in our visual science course, which was useful in the sense that we had to do it very quickly. But now we've got those materials that we can actually uh, use uh, in the future. So at the moment, my teaching is is a combination of face-to-face as well as online. And we're trying to do a fair few face-to-face lectures and a combination of online and face-to-face pracs. But in terms of research, uh, I'd have to say that 2020 was not a great year for us because a lot of our participants are older and of course they fall into a vulnerable population. So we weren't really able to do much research at all. We did some sort of laboratory-based things that weren't related to older participants but we did lose a fair bit of time so at the moment we're really trying to catch up to try and make sure that we can really meet all our deadlines in terms of government and industry sponsored research so we're enjoying being back but it's been busy (laughs) to say the least. I was going to say that having had that break with research do you think that's given you a sort of a fresh perspective on why you sort of fell in love with it in the first place are you able to say what you most enjoy about doing the research? Yeah, it's a good point, actually, because a lot of my research is nighttime work. So we have to do a lot of nighttimes down the track. So I do a whole day at work. During the night, I'm doing all my uh, nighttime driving studies. And I thought I would enjoy the break. But in fact, I was really looking forward to coming back to it by the start of this year. So 
I think my research is really applied. So we do a whole range of studies, but essentially we're looking at the effects of vision and aging on activities of daily living, particularly driving, which is the main focus of my research. But also we look at the effects on mobility and falls, as well as academic performance in our studies of children. So we've got a range of different outcome measures, but they're all very applied. But I think I really enjoy the fact that the research is such a, a range of different topics. And for me, it's very satisfying to know that the results have real world implications and can you know, make a difference to the community. So I think the break was good for me because I've come to really appreciate the research. And it did, of course, give us a lot of time to plan for projects for this year. And so we're really working hard at the moment to try and meet our deadlines. I mean, you're basically like a superhero, aren't you? I mean, you spend the day doing one thing and then the night doing something else. It's very sort of Batman to me, uh, <laughs> which is fun. So, I mean, your, your latest uh, publication is very much picking up on, the, on what you were talking about there. It's called Refractive Blur Affects Judgment of Pedestrian Walking Direction at Night. So we're ticking the boxes here. We've got nighttime, we've got uh, everyday activities. Can you firstly tell us what the aims of this particular research project were and why they're specifically important to investigate? Yeah, certainly. Well, we wanted to look at the effects of small amounts of refractive blur on drivers' ability to judge the walking direction of pedestrians at night time. And we were also interested in looking at the interaction of that relationship with the type of clothing that the pedestrians who are walking across the road were wearing. So the issue of judging pedestrian walking direction is important because, of course, if a pedestrian is walking towards the road, it's much more relevant to safety than if they're walking away from the road. So for a driver to know whether a pedestrian is approaching the road or going away is really important. And as sure. you sort of up, nighttime driving is really somewhat dangerous. So it's got lots of different challenges for the driver. And that's represented or sort of um, evidenced in the fact that the crash rates at night are three times higher than in the day. And for pedestrians, those crashes that involve pedestrians and other low contrast objects, they're seven times higher. Plus the severity of crashes involving pedestrians at night are much greater. So it's a very dangerous place for pedestrians and cyclists at night. And we also know that part of the problems at nighttime is low visibility. So crash data has indicated when they've analysed that over a whole range of different studies, that it's the low visibility conditions at nighttime rather than fatigue or increased alcohol consumption that are the problem. So all of those things brought together are really why we were particularly focused on that topic. So the two interesting concepts are there, I mean, many interesting things about this paper and this project, but two particularly interesting concepts being a vision at night and the impact of blur in particular uh, on that. And the idea also of biological motion, our perceptual capacity to recognise the unique movement patterns of living creatures. Uh, can you tell us a bit more sort of specifically about blur and biological motion and any more about why you thought they were a particular should be a particular focus certainly well uh, as you say there are two sort of streams to this that really underpin why we uh, designed the study as we did so in terms of blur we know that uncorrected refractive errors are the main cause of reversible visual impairment and we also know that there are some people who drive with uncorrected refractive errors and of interest to this was um i was involved in a recent focus group study um which was published in Transportation Research Part F in 2018. And that was conducted here in the UK, or there in the UK, with uh, Fiona Farland from uh, Leeds Beckett University, and of course, David Elliott from the University of Bradford. 
And in that study, we were looking at people who um, reported that they didn't wear their spectacles for driving. And they particularly reported, one of the comments was they didn't wear their spectacles at night for driving because they felt they made nighttime glare worse. So it's really of interest to us that people aren't wearing their spectacles when they need to when they drive. And it's a particular problem at nighttime because we know that nighttime driving is really dangerous. And in some studies a few years ago, we'd actually looked at the effects of blur on the ability to detect pedestrians at nighttime. So we looked at the distances at which a driver could first detect a pedestrian while they're driving around a closed road circuit. And we found that even a small amount of blur, as small as plus 0.50, made a big difference. But in those studies, the drivers were well, our participants were drivers um, and our pedestrians because of safety concerns because obviously there's a moving car we don't want a moving pedestrian we're sure, walking yeah. in place so what we really wanted to do in this study was to see whether when a pedestrians were actually walking across the road as they would normally as opposed to walking in place although that kind of mimics walking it's not the same as traversing across the road so we wanted to see whether the effects of blur were the same when people were walking across the road and we also wanted to look at the perception of direction the other issue is the whole example you've uh, raised about the biological motion is really important and we've done a lot of work to show that putting retroflective strips on the movable joints that is the ankles and the knees the wrists and the elbows when they're lighted up by the oncoming headlights create a sensation of what we call biomotional biological motion which is really where you, it's the capacity of the visual system to detect something is moving that it's actually a person or a living creature so because in our previous studies where we looked at biological motion where we look at whether people wearing the reflective strips on their movable joints as compared to FS, we've shown that when the reflective strips are on the movable joints, it makes a huge improvement in the ability to see pedestrians compared to when the reflective strips are on the vest, where, which is actually, of course, a vest. Your torso is fairly stationary when you walk, whereas your arms and legs are moving. And, but in those previous yeah. studies, we only looked at people when they had um, optimal correction. We hadn't really looked at the effect of blur on those uh, impacts. And the last thing that's really important and it's relevant from a practical perspective is that the sort of strips that we've used in these previous studies have been quite wide. So you probably have the same sort of strip width. It's about five centimeters. It's that standard retroflective material that you see on road worker outfits. So it's quite wide. And what we were interested in is if you made the strips a bit narrower, would they still be as effective at increasing pedestrian visibility and walking direction detection? Because clearly people don't want to look like road workers. So if you can incorporate thinner strips, would that be as effective as thicker strips? And that was one of our aims as well. So what you're trying to find out there is whether it's the um, use of strips at all and the sort of identification of movement around a body is the most important thing rather than the size and the actual amount of reflection. Exactly right. That's right. Because we have in other studies shown that when you've got the same amount of retroflective material on a vest and compared visibility distances to when the reflective materials, the same amount, exactly the same amount is distributed across the movable joints. When it's on the movable joints, it makes a huge difference. So it's not how much reflective material you have, but it's where it's positioned. And when you position the reflective strips on the movable joints, it makes a huge difference to your ability to see pedestrians. And in other studies, when we've looked at cyclists, we've shown that when the reflective strips are on the ankles and knees, um, it makes a huge difference there because obviously those are the bits that are moving when you're cycling. So it's all about 
reflective strips being on the movable joints to create that sense of biological motion, which seems to be the most important thing, not the amount. But what we have done in the past in our studies have tended to use these thicker strips just because they're more available. And what we were really trying to look at is if you make them thinner, are they still as effective? So for those unfamiliar with research, who just hear the findings, you know, they might hear, oh, we did a project where there was a car and there was a person that we saw what they thought. They might sort of wonder, well, how can you create a realistic scenario or take account of factors that might affect the results? I mean, you've touched there on, you know, people moving, car moving or not um, because of safety. But can you tell us a bit about how you take account insofar as you can of the various different factors that might affect these, this decision making in a nighttime scenario? Well, first of all, our studies are always undertaken in the real world. So people are either driving or stationary in real cars and then they're on real roads. So they've got the, the actual circuit that we use. It's got standard road signs and markings and the pattern of vehicle headlights and the reflections from the road and ambient light levels are represent that of typical nighttime roads. Whereas other studies have used laboratory-based setups or simulators where it is quite hard to represent the nighttime driving situation. In some of our studies, we get people are driving, uh, which is obviously very representative of what people do. So it's more when we you're driving around the circuit, it's a lot like driving around a rural road. So we don't have any lights on the circuit. So we add lights to stimulate the effects of oncoming headlights and things like that. In another study, we're actually adding street lights, which we mount on trailers to represent sort of a more urban situation. But the problem with the studies is you can't have the car moving and also the pedestrian moving for ethical purposes and obviously the safety of our participants and also our experimenters. In the studies previously, we've used moving vehicles and pedestrians walking in place. And in the study here, we had a stationary vehicle where people are seated in the driver's side of the car and we've got moving pedestrians. So clearly, you, though neither of those situations replicates the, the actual situation. We both may be moving, but for safety purposes and sort of for experimental control as well, we have to adopt that type of situation. However, we have shown in some of our studies where we looked at, that one of them was looking at road worker visibility, and we found that when drivers were stationary making judgments, that the actual pattern of results was very similar to when the participants were actually drivers and moving in a vehicle. So I think the pattern of results is going to be fairly representative. But in terms of, I mean, we don't do these, we typically don't do the work at nighttime in traffic conditions because it really is so unsafe because we know the crash risk is so high. So this is what we're using is something that we can control things for safety purposes. And we can, to some extent, control lighting as well. So we can try and be as repeatable as possible because in these type of repeated measures designs, we have to be really careful for a particular set of conditions, say, for example, the set of blur or clothing conditions, everything else is as similar as possible because otherwise you've got all these different factors changing and then you can't really tease out the effects of blur or clothing. So it's a compromise between experimental control and also safety. Are you suggesting that the research suggests that people in a moving car seem as able to tell whether someone is walking in what direction as people in a non-moving car? In the studies that I was referring to, the experimenters were walking and the participants were stationary in one study and vice versa. There wasn't that much difference in the pattern results. Obviously, when paid right. participants are stationary in the vehicle, they tend to be a little bit more accurate, but the pattern of results across blur and across the clothing conditions is very similar. And realistically, we cannot have 
a participant who's moving and, and our experiment is moving. But I think that the pattern of results that we saw in terms of walking direction was very similar to that of a previous study where we didn't induce the effects of blur, but we looked at the effects of different clothing. Yeah, so it's a good basis to, to build a project. I must admit, it sounds like with the lighting that you're setting up and so it does sound quite like a film set, uh, which sounds quite fun to me. Um, so uh, what did the research actually find out in the end? It was really exciting. Well, it was very interesting. We found that as we had in the study where the, the participants were driving, even small amounts of blur made a difference to pedestrian recognition. So we found that when blur was as low as plus 0.50, it made a big difference to the ability to detect the walking direction of the pedestrians. And we also found that the biomotion clothing was significantly improved the capacity to judge walking direction. A very positive note that the thinner biomotion strips were also as effective as the thicker ones. So there was very little difference. So there's not a lot more benefit of having more retroflective strips as long as the strips are in the right place. And so we're very excited about that because it means that we can make the strips thinner without losing any of the benefits of being able to detect the walking direction of our pedestrians, as well as the ability to recognize them within a road environment. So that's given us a lot of hope because we're very interested in working with designers for clothing that can practically be used by recreational runners and walkers at night, as opposed to the road workers. Our research has been underpinned the changes to standards for nighttime road workers. So in Australia, the road workers have to wear the reflective strips on their ankles and knees in a sort of biomotion fashion. They're sort of mandated to do that as on the basis of our research. So road workers have to do it as part of their work. And so they have sort of, there's less choice, whereas we are really very keen for our research to penetrate to recreational cyclists and walkers and runners. And they've got a choice about what they wear. So what we need to be looking at is ways in which we can make the retroflective strips more attractive to wear or more wearable for people so that we know then they're going to be more likely to be implemented. So that's another a sort of strand of our research. So this, the fact that these thinner strips seem as effective as the thicker strips is, is a very positive outcome for us. Yeah, I can confirm as a child who was sent to piano lessons uh, of an evening wearing reflective bands around his arms as if he was going swimming. Um, I can confirm that if it looks a bit better, I'd probably be more likely to wear it. Um, so I agree with that. Um, can you just say about whether there was any uh, more likelihood of drivers being able to spot pedestrians walking in any particular direction? Did they fare better when they walked straight across the road or when they walked towards the car or away from the car? Or was it there no particular uh, pattern it was all about the blur, it was all about the biomotion. There wasn't really a pattern. So we did several directions and towards away and straight ahead, and it didn't make much difference. So uh, the results were really driven by the effects of blur and the effects of clothing. What are the recommendations then for optometrists in practice as a result of the research? I mean, ultimately, it would be nice if an optometrist could hand someone a fashion catalogue with all the cool new gear they could get uh, that has reflective biomotion, but are there specific things uh, that optometrists in practice could be saying? Is it basically, you know, wear your correction at night, it's really important? Yeah, I think that's a really important thing for optometrists to be telling their patients. So we're saying that even with small amounts of refractive blur, it makes a difference to pedestrian conspicuity. So the ability to recognize pedestrians on the roadside, as well as being able to judge their walking direction 
as well and I think as a side issue it also highlights the benefit of bi motion clothing but I think the issue here is that even with the high levels of blur the plus one blur which also made a difference the drivers in our study still met the driver licensing criteria of 612 or better so it means that while drivers may be legal to drive with those levels of blur they're actually not able to detect pedestrians and other low contrast objects at night so I think it really means that optometrists need to be very aware of prescribing optimal refractive corrections for their patients and sort of really encouraging patients to wear them and raising their awareness that if they're not wearing their optimal correction, they may be in danger of not detecting pedestrians or cyclists or other low contrast things at night. So it's really, I think it sort of, it raises awareness because I must admit, I didn't think before we'd done these studies that a half a diopter of blur would really make much difference. But in fact, surprisingly it did. And it, that does support the previous studies we've done as well, where we had people walking in place on the roadside and the participants were drivers. So I think all of the evidence comes together and it's really saying that you need to wear your optimum correction at nighttime because that's really going to make you a much safer driver. Or at least you'll be able to see pedestrians in time to make safe driving decisions. In light of one of the things you make reference to in the paper, that other researchers found pedestrians greatly overestimate how likely they are to be seen by oncoming drivers. Do you think there's actually any role for optometrists in raising some of these issues with pedestrians as well as recommending things to drivers? Do you think there is any way, um, I mean, as you say, there's the sort of, there's the clothing side and the production of it, but when you've actually got a patient in front of you, do you think there is any way to get that across to them in particular, maybe if they have a kind of job which involves them working at night? Yeah, I think it's really important for us all to be aware. And I mean, it, I have to admit that I wasn't aware of how invisible I was at night wearing dark clothing uh, until I'd done the studies. So I've been doing these studies for many years, but it's all, when I go down the track and do the studies, it always is a really bleak reminder to me that, in fact, if you're wearing dark clothing at night, you're unlikely to be seen very easily. And if you are going to be exposing yourself at night in the sense that you're going to be cycling or walking or running at night, then it behoves you to wear your reflective material and wear it on the movable joints. It's also important to recognize that while you can see the oncoming vehicle, the oncoming vehicle can't see you. So of course you're as a pedestrian or are likely to be dark adapted because you've been looking around in a darkened environment, whereas the driver is not dark adapted. And so the fact is that you can see the, the driver much more quickly than the driver can see you. So I think it is important. It would be very useful for optometrists to really be emphasizing to their patients, particularly those who are in those more vulnerable road users, we talk about vulnerable road users, we mean cyclists and pedestrians, it, that they aren't going to be seen at night unless they're wearing retroflective materials and the retroflective materials should be on the movable joints, not on the vest. And that's contra to a lot of people's perceptions because we know that we all think we put a reflective vest on, that it really makes us instantly recognizable at night. But in fact, it doesn't necessarily, it just makes us look 
like a bright object, but it doesn't make us look like a person unless it's on the movable joints. So I think it's really important. And, and also just letting their patients know that spectacles and night are really going to make a difference, having the optimal correction, but also being aware to be vigilant to look out for pedestrians and cyclists because they're often not very visible. You've described there a little bit about sort of what you've realised uh, and how um, uh, the results have affected you. Has it actually affected your behaviour, do you think, as a, a driver or indeed a pedestrian, cyclist? Um, in terms of learning more about these things? Yeah, definitely. Um, when I'm driving at night, I'm really super careful to look for pedestrians and cyclists, as I know only too well how invisible they are when they're not wearing the bi-motion clothing, because I see that all the time when I'm in the car at night on the driving track, because I'm typically in the passenger seat instructing the driver. And so I'm seeing the pedestrians who I know to be there because they're my experimenters who I know are in a particular place and they're not very easy to see. I, I think that for me, the positive benefits of biomotion clothing are always reinforced when I pass road worker sites because as I said in us earlier, in Australia, road workers have to wear the reflective materials on their movable joints as part of the standards. And, and I think when I drive past, I do sometimes sort of, it's, it just continues to surprise me how much they pop out as being so visible compared to the road work environment. And I think it also makes me very proud because I know that the work of our team has contributed to the changes in standards, which makes such a difference to the visibility of the road workers. So I, as I think I started off by saying something about, you know, the impact of the re, in the real world. And for me, it's really great to see the benefits of that research being translated into the environment and for our community. Absolutely, yeah. When I walk and run at night, I am also conscious of how invisible I am. And I do wear as much reflective clothing as I can on my movable joints. But I think an important thing is, and it's something that you touched on before when you said you were going to your piano practice and you had those armbands on, it is sometimes hard to find stylish or comfy clothing that incorporates reflective strip. And realistically, we're not going to wear things that aren't comfortable or we perhaps think are not as stylish as they might be. So as part of our work and some work we've been undertaking in conjunction with Fiona Filan, who I mentioned earlier, uh, is looking at trying to work with fashion designers. And we have some here at QUT and we're working with them to try and look at designing clothes that have visibility benefits, but also are going to be more likely to be worn by runners or cyclists or whatever, because they are comfortable and they are more stylish looking and people don't start to look like a road worker, which is the, I think, although a road worker is very visible, most people don't want to look like them at night. And there's a sort of Venn diagram there of maybe fashion and road work, and I'd love to see more of it. Uh, but yeah, I think it's important to recognise the different audiences. So what is your, that's, that's that paper, that's that research done, that's great. Is there, uh, what's your next uh, research project looking at? Well, we've got lots of projects going on at the moment because we're trying to catch up a bit, but um, two important ones are both nighttime driving ones because that has been quite a focus of our work over the last few years. So one of them is really trying to develop um, novel visual tests that include or can incorporate some of the dynamic light levels typical of nighttime driving. And then we've been working with a group at the University of Melbourne in developing these tests. And then we're going to evaluate them on the closed road to see how well these tests uh, predict nighttime driving because it would be very useful to be able to identify whether people are safe or unsafe at night and be able to give them appropriate advice. So that would inform visual testing as well as really help us to better understand some of the challenges of nighttime driving. 
uh, we've got another study that I alluded to before, which is looking at the dimming of LED streetlights. So um, LED streetlights are being rolled out across the world. They've got lots of benefits environmentally and economically. One of the goals of a lot of the authorities here is to be able to dim the streetlights. Um, so obviously there's even better economic and environmental benefits. But the, the challenge here is we want to make sure that the dimming doesn't actually compromise safety. So one of the studies we have is where we're erecting a series of different LED streetlights on the circuit and looking at the effects of dimming on performance on the closed road. So that's a quite a big project, which we're just about to start as well. We also have a few studies going on in children's vision and mobility and balance, but I think it's fair to say that we're keeping very busy and we're on a big catch up here. But on the other hand, we're really, really enjoying getting back to research after last year where we didn't really have the opportunities that we'd have liked to have done. On the other hand, we've been luckier than um, many people across the world, I think, in terms of having the opportunity to go back this year and be much more near to normal. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jo. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Daniel, what are you doing on the 16th of June? 16th of June? I'll be watching football, Martin. Will you? Well, I know, Daniel, that the only thing that you like more than football is a webinar about common optic neuropathies, investigations and management pathways. Am I right? Well, will there be CET points? You know what, Daniel? They're only blooming will. You get one whole CET point if you attend this webinar. Well, actually, Martin, to be honest with you, even without CET points, I'd be very interested to learn more about common optic neuropathies. I thought you probably would. I mean, it's aimed at providing examples of cases presented with different types of optic neuropathies and optic nerve swelling. You know, it's very important to recognise features of true optic nerve swelling, decide if it's unilateral, bilateral, then undertake a differential diagnosis. And that's what you're going to get. But the question is, who's the speaker? It's only Ali Yagan, consultant education lead and clinical supervisor at Manchester Royal Eye Hospital. Well, sign me up now. Well, you can. We'll put the link to the webinar in the show notes that you can find wherever you're listening to this podcast, or you can visit www.college-optometrists.org events to register. Of course, if you really can't peel your eyes off the football like Daniel, the college runs webinars every month. So check out the events pages to see what's coming up. I look forward to it. You do. Back to the show. Hello and welcome. In this podcast, we find out more about the college's communication team's work. And I'm really delighted to be joined by Anne-Marie Stevens, Public Relations Manager, and Abby Dudgeon, College Marketing Executive, who manages our social media. So, um, Anne-Marie, let's start with you. Tell us about your role at the college. Hi Daniel, thanks for asking me to do this. So firstly, I'm responsible for any media engagement at all that comes from the college. So I manage our busy press office and that can work in two ways. So we do some proactive campaigns and that's mainly what we'll be talking about later on, our focus on life campaign. And that's when we do some strategic planning around when we want to have a new story land and you know what we want that story to be and how we want to involve our members. And then on the other side of things, I also work on reactive messages. So reactive messages can be, there's kind of two elements to that too. So firstly, if there's a new story where there's something about vision or something related to optometry or something related to the work that we do, that's factually incorrect. 
it will be my job to try and, you know, speak with that journalist or, you know, as a bigger news story, speak with the various different outlets and try and get them to change it so that the public, you know, they, they're not getting incorrect information. And then the other way in which we use reactive um, messages is we have something that we can add to a story. So sometimes there might be a story about maybe a celebrity who's had an eye injury or, you know, maybe a celebrity that has spoken about something related to their vision. And we will put out a statement to media and on our website and on our consumer facing website and on our social media channels to add to that or to give our expert opinion or, you know, sometimes it will be to say, yeah, this this person has said something that's, you know, really important and we want to emphasize that. Or we can say sometimes, you know, this injury could be avoided by doing this or, you know, you know, that kind of thing. So the other thing that I do is we have kind of ongoing media relations then. And a really good example of that would be through the COVID-19 pandemic, where it's been my job to put out the correct messages about what patients can do. And also on an ongoing basis, I will have emails and calls from journalists to say, can we go to optometrists now? What's the story? Can you update me? And, you know, during the pandemic, at some points, that did seem, you know, unclear for the public. So that's kind of like the ongoing work that I'm doing. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of my job wrapped up. Wow. So you're doing a lot. So it's a busy office, constant calls from journalists, constantly reaching out to journalists to update them, make sure they're on message with the college and connecting the journalists with members and various experts as well. Sounds exactly. really busy. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that we do do is we um, also always work on patient case studies. And if you are listening and you have a good patient case study, I'm always interested in hearing from you. <laughs> Get a little plug in there. <laughs> and what about things like Eye Health Week and other regular activities? Do you manage those as well? Yeah, so generally what we try to do is, you know, through our various different reference groups or, you know, through ad hoc feedback that we get from members, we try to play on the questions that they are being asked by the public or, you know, what the kind of zeitgeist is. So there's some regular topics that we will cover. So, yeah, you're right. We always take part in National Eye Health Week, which takes place in September. But there's other things that we will do. So, for example, sunglasses, winter sun, hay fever. And each year we'll do something, you know, hopefully that has a member asset or a member part of that, but also a media element where we try and explain to the media about what patients should be doing at that time. So Anne-Marie, tell us more about the Focus on Life campaign. Yeah, so the Focus on Life campaign was something that, and you will laugh when I tell you this, that we really wanted to, in the year 2020, we wanted to kind of leverage the kind of year that it was and use that as a news hook with the kind of close association with 2020 vision. So we... Uh, engage in the services of a PR agency that are called Cow PR. We wanted to come up with something that could obviously create a news hook. We wanted to give an asset also to our members. And I suppose we wanted to get the public to start thinking about their eye health in a, in a different way or try and encourage them to think about their vision for just a few minutes or just a few seconds even. Our target audience was the general public, obviously media, and also, you know, we wanted to engage with our members. Basically, the, the approach that this PR agency came up with was they had this kind of a disruptive approach where they wanted to use the arts as a way to make people appreciate 
how the world as they see it. So we wanted to kind of create like initially the idea was a film and a book, which both came to, to fruition, that were just slightly different to how you would see them if you had very good vision. And so the concept kind of came from there, the idea of focus on life. So so what about the first aspect of the campaign, the film? How did that come into fruition? It sounds like a lot of things to bring together, a film director, the media, the launch. Um, what was the background to that? Yeah, and Daniel, just add in a global pandemic just to make things more tricky. <laughs> so actually, yeah. that's, a, that's a good starting point. So this was planned for 2020 and for the start of the year, but we delayed it due to the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah, so there were several reasons to delay it, not only because optometrists were not doing routine sight tests, so, um, you know, that timing was off, but also because the film that we actually chose needed to be recorded and that was against COVID guidelines. So that obviously had to be put on pause until much later in the year. And so to go back to the beginning of your question, really, we kind of had two distinct components. So we had the Focus on Life film and then we had the Alice in Wonderland book. With the film, COW, our PR agency, were really helpful in identifying a director that would capture what we were trying to communicate. So we wanted a beautiful film, a film that was both interesting, captivating, engaging and I'll be honest, short, because people don't really want to watch something that's really long. We wanted to create something that was eye-catching. Um, excuse the pun there. We engaged the services of Mark Nunley. He was a BAFTA-nominated director, and he was really excited to work on the campaign. So we kind of came up with the concept of, you know, people focusing on their memories and different elements of life, which they have really enjoyed, and then that it will be shot beautifully, but ever so slightly out of focus and that was the focus on live film so that was shot back in August of last summer and we wanted to launch the campaign in October and there were various other assets that we would use to kind of engage media so it's all very well to have this really eye-catching film but obviously you want to have a news story too so what we did was we did a survey on more related to people's eye health habits and their attitudes towards their eye health. And, you know, we got some really interesting statistics from that. So about what people felt about whether they were living without very clear vision and what they did to improve their vision. And in some cases, it was things like moving closer to the television and people preferred to do that rather than getting a sight test. Once we did the survey, we were able to create a press release. We had some stills from the film. We then also created interview opportunities with both the director himself and with your good self, Daniel. And we got them to create loads of different short video teasers, which Abby will talk a little bit about more. What we also did that day, then it's really important to us that we both engage national media, but also regional media. So once the press release goes out to media and you kind of give them a few days before your big day because you want them to, you know, have some time to do their interviews and, you know, do any prep that they need to do, do any background research that they need to do. But on the day itself, we also held what we call a radio day, which is where one of our spokespeople, and it was you, Daniel, and the director, as I mentioned, Mark Nunley, will do a range of interviews on radio across the day. And then those radio interviews may be broadcast both nationally and regionally and also can be syndicated, which means that they would be sent a little bit further. So the, the reach can be really amplified by doing something like that. And so was this the first time that you did a survey with the public to find out perceptions or is that something you regularly do? 
we have done surveys on attitudes um, in the past. And in fact, we had done a survey in June of 2020 just related to lockdown. So this kind of tied in with that. We, we've very recently done a survey as an update to the September research. So you can watch out for something that will be coming out about that very soon. But, you know, what, what I find is that journalists, and you will probably know this as a, as a consumer of media, that they're always interested in statistics. That's what, what they want to read and what's what they want to see. They, they want a killer number, don't they? One killer exactly, number. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's what they're looking for. But yeah, so we then, we launched the campaign on the 20th of October. Um, that was with our film premiere, which Abby will talk about. But um, essentially on the next day, which was our big media day, we really... You know, we, we have one of our most successful media campaigns for the college. We had coverage in four national news outlets. So that's the Times, the Guardian, Sky News, and we also had the Irish Examiner. And we had 15 regional radio interviews. So depending on where you are listening to us from in the country, it's very likely that we may have been speaking with your local or regional radio station. Just to say as well, you know, the film gave us such a good talking point because it's so visual for television. So our Sky News piece ran at six minutes long, which, you know, we really haven't had a piece that has been that long from the college. And we're really hoping that through this, members of the public will see this film and, you know, think about their vision and think about visiting their optometrist or just think about their eye health overall. Maybe go look at our Look, look After Your Eyes website and, you know, find out more about any conditions that they think that they might have. So, so I was really blown away at the time by actually how much attention we got from the broadcast media, from the print media, and, and even friends and family, people from outside of were just ringing me up and saying, oh, Daniel, I heard you on the radio, or I saw the thing in the newspaper about Focus on Life. So it really has huge reach amongst the public. And the impression I got from people in practice who were talking about it was that it really did get people to stop and pause and think. You worry, don't you, that it might just be a gimmick or it might just go over people's heads. But it really had impact to the public and made them think about their eyesight and their optometrist, which is really quite amazing. Exactly. And you know what, Daniel, I think it was a beautiful piece of art, which we also created for our members and they can share and continue to share. If our members, for example, wanted to have a broadcast in their waiting room, you know, that is an asset that is available to them to even share now if they want to. And I think that kind of keeps the campaign almost going, if that makes sense. If you're listening now and you haven't used it, you know, share it on your social media channels. It really did engage people. And I feel like we really achieved our goal there and and so it's a beautiful film for those who haven't seen it there were actors in it it was scripted and and it looks like a really expensive high budget production but i understand because we're a charity we were able to lever it and, and really do it on a very tight budget is that right Amory? Well, yeah, you know, we operate as a not-for-profit. So from that point of view, obviously, we really are cost conscious. So we have been able to do probably more than I imagined um, on a, you know, what would you on use? On a shoestring budget. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. So from that point of view, it was, you know, a, a roaring success. And just to mention what we hoped would happen after the film was that we would very quickly have our blurred book. And obviously we couldn't um, have anticipated the impact of COVID-19, unfortunately. So we did delay launching the second element of that campaign, which in retrospect might have been really punchy one after the next, but we delayed it until just April now, um, just this past month. 
And what the concept behind that was we blurred a children's classic. So, you know, the first element of the campaign was really about the general public. And the second element was more focused towards children and trying to get, you know, parents, grandparents, family to think about their children's eyesight. So we chose the much loved Lewis Carroll, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And it's interesting because we, we partly chose that book be, for a newsworthy angle. The V&A was due to launch this amazing exhibition of Alice in Wonderland. I think it was maybe last April. And obviously that all got delayed. And it's funny to see that that is being launched right now. Um, <laughs> So we're all doing the same thing one year later. But yeah, we wanted to kind of resonate on a children's classic that appeals to all generations. And that's why we chose Alice. And again, we got the entire thing just slightly out of focus. So you can read it if you try really hard, but it's really exhausting. Um, I don't know if you had the same experience, Daniel, but it was really straining to read it. And again, you know, so we, we did a similar kind of campaign there where we prepared our press releases. So we used, again, updated survey data. We, we updated our September data during a survey of 2000 people which is what journalists like to see. They like to see at least 2,000 people because that kind of gives a good sentiment as to what people are feeling um, and used um, stats related to children's eye health there. The, the main stat was that up to 23% of, of parents hadn't brought their ch child to see an optometrist. So, you know, again, like what we said, like journalists like to see hard-hitting stats and, you know, it's not that we're happy to see that stat statistic, you know, but it's, it's a way of engaging media, you know. And really just emphasising, I guess, the magnitude of the problem. This is a really serious issue that we need to get out there. So even though we've used art, it's very beautiful, it's a very creative way of getting that engagement, this is a really serious problem. You know, there are children out there who, who need to have access to an optometrist, who need to be able to see better, and, and all these messages, I guess, feed into that, don't they? It tangibly results in people accessing eye care who wouldn't have otherwise. Exactly. That's what we really want to do. And as you say, it's, it's really important to remember that there is a serious topic at the heart of this. And timing around this, we, we chose very carefully. We wanted to make sure that optometrists were open so that we weren't driving a need for parents to bring their child, but not actually be able to access the services. So that was also very important to us. We actually had two media days, as it turns out. We launched the campaign on the 28th of April and had a second media day. And as part of that, again, we had another radio day where, Daniel, um, you did a lot of interviews and also apparently Bilku, our other um, clinical advisor, was fantastic on the day. And again, we had 11 different regional radio stations and some of the reach of those can be as wide as 850,000 listeners. So again, if you're listening, I would uh, appeal to you to see if Daniel apparently was speaking on your local radio, you, Daniel, talking about children's eye health, talking about the book. It was a really uh, good was about five minutes long again on the 24th of May. So again, another piece of really gold standard coverage that we were looking for. So, so that's a good point to move across to Abby. So Abby, first of all, tell us about what you do. What does it involve being college marketing executives? Hello, thank you. Um, I'm excited to be here. It's my first podcast and it's a very hard act to follow, Emery. So thank you. <laughs> um, so basically, I do a lot of things across the college, but one of my things or well, one of my main jobs is to look after the social media accounts which includes um, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and we also do the occasional YouTube video. Overall that kind of looks like scanning round 
social listening, seeing what things are being spoke about on the internet, looking at our own content, maybe suggesting things that we can do ourselves um, and obviously scheduling that in. Um, it also involves communicating with members, people of the public, um, just being the gateway between the college and everyone that's following us. Um, and Abby, what kind of things do you post? So on Instagram, for example, what's, what's, what's the typical kind of things that are going out on the Instagram channel? So I would say Instagram, which is one of my, I must admit, one of my favourites because I started it in 2018. It was like a highlight for me. Um, so basically on Instagram, I tried to make it somewhere where the college would be very personable and I hope that comes across. Um, but I like it to have more interactive features. For example, we have a clinical quiz every Thursday, which gets around 1,500 to 2,500 people taking part each week with thanks to the clinical advisors for providing us with the quizzes. And we also like to do a lot of like more story type things to get people involved. Things like Takeover Tuesdays so people can see what other people do in practice, Day in the Life, and then a lot of like our students and more newly qualified members to kind of show how they progress. And I'd say on the other platform, Twitter is very news heavy. So updating where we can, LinkedIn very career focused and Facebook, I try and push that more towards patients. So people with practice accounts, they can push out information to their patients by sharing what we put on there. So, so would you say what you put out on each different account is tailored to the different audiences of Instagram and Twitter and Facebook? Yeah, I try to the best I can. Some things obviously have to go on everywhere if it's like a massive alert, but um, I try to do them in specific ways. For example, if something really important was coming out, it would go straight onto Twitter because that's the way the timeline works. It's in chronological order, so it will get there straight away. And same for Instagram on the story, but something like LinkedIn and Facebook it has a different algorithm so things that are time sensitive might not show up for a few weeks so you just got to think about a few things like that. So tell us about how social media played into the Focus on Life campaign. Let's start with the film. Yeah so basically the film was beautiful I loved it and obviously due to the pandemic our original plan was actually to be a wider campaign and maybe go to like a small cinema and like invite press and members there to see it and um, but obviously due to the pandemic we couldn't do that anymore we thought instead it would be a really good idea to bring it to the homes of people and kind of leverage the power of social media so we used the YouTube premiere function which gave us a really good opportunity to engage and connect everyone across the UK with our campaign message which I thought was really nice and um, so people who didn't see it so what you can do on YouTube is it's like a film premiere it's a big launch there's a countdown people are at their screens across the country tuned in for this so so actually it worked out really well we probably had more people there than we would have if we did it live yeah I think in the first 15 minutes we had 750 people view the video and then in the first 24 hours there was over 1,500 people so it did really reach a large audience and obviously as it wasn't in one place everyone across the UK had an equal opportunity to see it which was really nice and kind of part of that we made things like premiere invitations so that members could be invited to the premiere and they could also then invite their patients which gave them a way to connect with their patients kind of outside the practice but still involved the element of eyesight eye health. So tell us about the social media day Abby. 
Yeah, so the day after the premiere, um, we really wanted to amplify the media campaign that um, Anne-Marie was talking about. So we coordinated a sector-wide social media day, which we wanted to encourage everyone to post a blurred image on their social media channels and use the hashtag Focus on Life. So we reached out to all our members through emails, social media, um, sector influencers, brands, other professional bodies all to take part and just before the live date we provided this focus on life pack which contained a number of blurred images the videos that we made teasers behind the scenes with Daniel and the director also people could use it on the day and just a little secret all of the blurred images from the film portion of Focus on Life were actually images that I asked staff to submit to me and I blurred. So it really was like a full college effort, which was really nice. On the day, we gained involvement of over 124 accounts, which really spread our message really organically across social media. This included the Ridley Scott Group, Macular Society, Fight for Sight, Royal College of Ophthalmologists, among a few which was really exciting. And on Twitter alone, we received 20 more mentions than we do on our average three days and eight times the amount of engagement we got. So I think we reached like 9% engagement score, which actually is mind-blowing, basically. and, uh, and one of one of the really overwhelming um, important points of the day, in my perspective, maybe from members' perspective as well, is it's one of the very few occasions in optometry and eye care that you bring the entire sector together. So all the different stakeholder organisations, the royal colleges, the unions, the insurance providers, the employers, the members, we all had a common purpose about promoting promoting this and getting the message out there. And it shows what we can really achieve when we work together. Yeah, I think. Overall, we were just so amazed by the impact of the campaign and like the level of positive engagement because it generated so much organic conversation across social media amongst all the sector and really surpassed all our expectations. So it was really nice to be a part of. So let's fast forward six months to the Alice in Wonderland campaign. And again, you had another social media day where you encouraged practices to take part. Tell us more about that. We did. So this time, instead of taking normal pictures, we grabbed a collection of images from the book and put our branding and the Focus on Life hashtag on it. And same concept, we asked our members, brands, um, sector bodies, all to take part in this day by posting again on their social media accounts with the hashtag Focus on Life. But obviously this time the focus was more on children's eye health. That again was very successful and we did like a five day sprint. So we kind of announced it on the Friday and then it happened on the Wednesday. And we had over 81 accounts take part, which was really nice. And over 1,300 people engage with our posts on it. And I guess I guess this time, so so first time round you had the, the mainstream media leading and this time you had social media leading and that traditional media followed with the radio day. Yeah, so it meant that the impact of the campaign went on and on. And I think it's interesting because the first social media day that we did was so impactful. And the second social media day was a little bit less so because it's a smaller campaign. But because the images were all from Alice in Wonderland, for me, it had huge impact because as I scrolled through Twitter, all I saw was Alice in Wonderland. It's, it's interesting when we use the same image from a perception point of view, it seemed massive. Whereas, and what was really cool about the first time was we asked people to use our images and their own images. And that was cool too, because it brought people's own personal element. I remember seeing on Instagram, like lots of different members and staff posted the family pictures, but slightly blurred. And that has a different impact, doesn't it? 
yeah, two two quite different days, but both very successful. So, so question for both of you now. So so which is more important? You know, is it traditional outlets or, or is it really all social media or do we have to now use both equally or? Well, you know, Daniel, I think I'll allow Abby answer too. But from our point of view for the campaign, it was really important that we gave our members tools to amplify the story. So that is like one of the KPIs or one of the goals for us. So so for this particular campaign, yeah, social is just as important as traditional. And I also think, you know, you have to think about different what we would call like segmented, segmented stakeholders. So who you're trying to communicate with. So even though sometimes it can be gold standard to get a big piece in the sun, because, you know, there's huge readership. And, but if you if you're trying to target a specific type of audience, maybe the sun isn't the right thing to be in. So it just it really depends. Like if, if you're trying to talk to just people in Glasgow the sun isn't the right thing. Do you, do you see what I mean? So maybe like a radio station there is. And so I think the two elements kind of go hand in hand, especially for this campaign. But I think we probably failed to say that Abby and I work really closely on PR and social media because everything that we do for PR is then amplified by social media. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And obviously these days social media has become such a big thing. I think if we didn't include it as part of the campaign, you'd be missing out. I know that I looked at our follower account today and we're just under, across all our channels, 45,000 followers. So if we didn't use that, we'd lose so many voices and views and people that can have conversations with it. So how do you measure the overall success of the campaign? I guess you have that North Star ambition of we want to save site, we want people to come into practice and, and access services. That's obviously a very difficult thing for us to measure. We hear from members that it does increase footfall or people have mentioned the campaign with booking appointments but what other ways do we measure that has been a success to know that we're getting it right or how we can improve it for the future so there's quite crude ways of measuring a pr campaign and it is literally by coverage clips so how many clips do you get so we will always set ourselves a target knowing that that is one measurement tool that's tangible and that you can mark and say, tick, that is correct. But you're right, there's so many other elements that are important to us. And so for this campaign, we had expected that we would get 30 clips of media. And we are at over 55 at this point. So, you know, we far exceeded that. But you're right. It is really tricky unless you're going to do a survey related to for a bigger campaign, maybe attitudes and then attitudes post and afterwards. It can be very difficult to measure. But yeah, one other way in which you measure is positive member feedback. So as you said, anecdotal things of you know patients coming in and saying they saw the campaign and also tells us we're doing the right thing. And another thing is member complaints, because if members aren't happy, we're not doing the right thing for them. So when you don't get member complaints, you also know you're probably doing the right thing. How can members get involved and do things? It is difficult to get noise. There's so many stories out there. The media is active, you know, with lots of other health topics, interest topics. Getting attention to eye care and optometry or people's individual practices is a tough thing to do. How can members join in and take part in the future? Well, it's a good question because it loops around to where I started. I love hearing case studies. You know, contact me with your case studies. They're a really good way of a human interest story. Usually it's a positive and uplifting story and it's a good way of engaging local and it can work for national media as well. And my email address is annemarie.stevens at college-optometrist.org. Contact me if you ever have a new story that you think is of interest or um, I'm always interested in hearing from members. If you want to amplify, say, for example, our focus on life, story 
we suggest maybe your, your social media channels. We are doing our best, as I've said, um, to contact regional stations or regional newspapers to whatever extent that we can. But there's no harm in if, if you feel like you have a story approaching your local radio station or approaching your local newspaper with your story. And, you know, if they contact you and you don't know what you should respond, contact me and I'll give you some college messaging around it. And, you know, I'll help you in any way that I can. So, so that's a great way that people can really help in the way that we can support using our knowledge to help support individual members in their practices. Yeah. So yeah. what's next? What's to look out for for 2021? Can we say? Well, we are planning another campaign. We're being quite tentative about it because of the pandemic, of course. Um, in the next couple of weeks, you can look out for some. We have, as I've mentioned already, we've been doing some statistics related to the pandemic and how people have felt about their eye health. And we will be having a campaign coming out about that in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, look out for something bigger that will definitely be coming. Fantastic. Well, thank you both very much for giving up your time and sharing with us what goes on in the communications team on social media and public relations and actually how it can make a really big difference both to our members and also to the public in getting out there with those really important messages. So Abby and Marie, thank you very much. And as Anne-Marie said, if you want to send in those messages, her email address is on the college website and also do always refer members of the public to our website www.lookafteryoureyes.org where we have a summary of most of our campaigns. We have lots of public information written in a way with materials that can support what you're saying in practice. Thank you both. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. And thanks very much to Anne-Marie, Abby and Joanne for speaking to us. You can see more about the Focus on Life campaign on our website, where you can also access OPO. For more of this sort of thing, especially now we're definitely definitely no longer talking about kitchens why not subscribe to the podcast and even like and rate it should you feel that and if you would like to suggest a topic for us to cover or even try your hand at a podcast takeover get in touch at podcasts at college-optometrists.org and with that until next time stay safe and goodbye